Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. It's chapter 9, 1-19. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylon kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, and that desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and all all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you you have fulfilled the lord you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to jerusalem just as it is written in the law of moses all this disaster has come on us yet we have not sought the favor of the lord our god by turning from our sins and giving attention to the truth The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear, open your eyes, and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Heavenly Father, we do um, come before you in humility and um, in, our, in our weakness, knowing that uh, there are so many things in your word that are very hard to understand at times. There are things in your word 
uh, that um, only you know the answer to. And so we do pray, Lord, as we do come before it, we'll come with that heart of uh, humility, asking you to uh, teach us and asking you to give us your word to, to convict our hearts. May your spirit uh, enlighten us, open our minds and ears to, uh, to what you need to say to us today. And so we pray for that today, Lord, and I pray that um, together we can come uh, and receive it and together as a church uh, consider how do we serve you and, and come before you in prayer uh, and repentance and petition uh, as a God who is holy and great. And we do pray that now in your son's name and all of God's people said, amen. Uh, let me ask you guys a question. What do you think of when you hear the name Karen? I reckon, you guys know what I'm referring to, right? The word, the name Karen. There's an article that I came across this week. What exactly is a Karen? And where did this meme come from? Uh, if you don't know, it's, it's people, the people use this name in a very derogatory way to describe someone. Uh, it became a meme. Uh, this BBC article explained it. If you want to look into it, you can. You can just Google that. Uh, but in this article, I read this. It said this. There's a section that said, Karen has in recent years become a widespread meme referencing a specific type of middle-class white woman who exhibits behaviors that stem from privilege. To give some examples, Karen is associated with the kind of person who demands to speak to the manager in order to belittle service industry workers, is anti-vaccination, and carries out racist microaggressions, such as asking to touch black people's hair. However, people who use the term Karen say that it's not simply a catch-all for all middle-aged white women and is rather dependent on a person's Behavior. Now, that's in the article. That's not my words. That's what the article said, okay? Now, if you're here and your name is Karen, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry that this has happened. I, I know Karens that are very friendly, selfless people, and I'm so sad that this name has you know, is now become a label. It's literally a label to label people, people's behavior. What behavior, though? Negative behavior. Uh, entitlement, privilege, selfishness. A label uh, that that makes me wonder, what would people use my name for if they were going to use my name as a label? Would it be something positive or would it be something negative? Like if you were really friendly and polite, oh, you're being such a Mikey. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being such a Mikey. Or would it be something negative like someone who's easily angered and bitter all the time, like me? You know, get over it. Stop being a Mikey. I can so see that happening. But it, it sounds stupid, doesn't it? It does sound stupid. But what we've done is we've done this with this name, Karen. Uh, you know, it's interesting because what society has done is we point the finger at this imaginary Karen with the issues of, of privilege and entitlement and selfishness in the world when really maybe we should be pointing the finger at ourselves. You see, the things that we find annoying about others are often the same things we find in ourselves, aren't they? And if God saw you and saw your traits, then wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't you see a little bit of... <clears throat> Karen in all of us? Oh, I don't feel comfortable using that word. Uh, let's stop using that label because it's just perpetuating it, the use of it. Let me repeat that. If God saw you and I in our traits, wouldn't he see a little bit of entitlement and privilege and selfishness in all of us? You see, in our individualistic Western society, we're taught our needs and wants are the most important things. So we expect to get our way if we want it. We want control of our present and our future circumstances. And it irks us when people don't meet our wants. Or we expect people, right, to treat us with respect because of our position in society. And yes, we will speak to the manager because I'm the customer and I'm always right. And isn't it so easy to project that entitlement upon God? 
when we come before him. Isn't it so easy to, to pray to God, expecting God to do something when we ask him? How are you approaching him? Like it, like that? Like, like someone who's entitled? Imagine coming to him and saying, God, I'm not happy with your service. How are you so incompetent? God, let me talk to your manager. There's someone higher up I can refer my matter to. Imagine coming to God with that sort of attitude. Well, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not like that. Maybe it's a bit more subtle. But maybe it's not a sense of entitlement, but rather your prayer life is just a routine. You come to God repeating the same thing because you've got it all together already. You just come to God because you just need to tick off that box. I've prayed today. That's enough. And in doing so, you treat God with that same disrespect. In Daniel chapter 9, God gives us this blueprint on how we should honestly see ourselves and how we can come before God in prayer and in trust. And it begins with Daniel's prayer as he communicates and talks with God. And, and so today we're going we're gonna to glean some truth from this chapter, from chapter 9, uh, how we should approach God in our attitude before him, uh, but also how uh, we can trust him in the process. So the three things, come before God in humility, which is what we're going to look at. Point two, to know the God who we pray to. And point three, to faithfully trust God and his plans for us. That's where we're going. Come before God in humility, know the God we pray to, and how we can trust God and his plans for us. Some context before we start. Again, uh, if you haven't been with us, you can catch up on, online. But last week we looked at chapter 7 and chapter 8 a little bit. We heard about dreams and visions that, that Daniel had concerning future empires and our confidence that God is in control, even over whatever empire might rise up and oppress his people. Daniel is a Jewish man living in the Babylonian Empire in 500, around that time B.C., uh, chapter 9 begins by telling us that he's living now under the rule of the Persian and Medes Empire. Right? That's where we're at in terms of our story, in terms of history. Right? Uh, the Persian Empire has defeated Babylon and uh, now they're in charge. And so we're under, uh, he's, this is the first year of King Darius, the, the Medes uh, king over Babylon. Now he's an Israelite, uh, he knows about God, he knows that this is the end of an era, the Babylonian era is over. Um, and God said this a generation ago. God promised a generation ago in, uh, during the time of Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, uh, which is in your Bible. You can read about that too. I've got it on the screen, actually. Let's read it together. Uh, who lived before Daniel. He lived in Jerusalem. Jeremiah prophesied that in 70 years, um, Babylon will be defeated. So verse 8. Have I got verse 8? Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Therefore the Lord Almighty says, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares, Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish from the sounds of joy, uh, from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of miles, millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become, become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Right? So this is Jeremiah, who lived a generation before Daniel in Jerusalem, prophesying to the people, saying, this is what's going to happen. Babylon's going to come and charge you. Again, in Jeremiah 29, he repeats it. I've got it again. I want to read it to you because I think it's important. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll stop there. Right? And so there's this picture here, there where Jeremiah already has prophesied this. Daniel now, a generation later, maybe like around 100 years later after Jeremiah, he's in Babylon. Well, Babylon's defeated now. He's there in the Persian Empire in control. And he's remembering this. He remembers this prophecy from Jeremiah, and now he's praying. How crazy is that? Right? 
I don't remember anything from last week. How can I remember something from 100 years ago? But Daniel remembers this prophecy that's probably been passed down to him. Uh, he's probably got scriptures in front of him as well. Uh, he's, in, he's an old man now, probably in his 80s at this point. Daniel, he knows God and, he's made a, and God has made a promise to his people. He will bring them back to Jerusalem, bring them back to the land of Israel. So Daniel turns to God in prayer, seeking God with all his heart, knowing that the era of the Babylonians is over. So he's got this in mind when he prays. Let's read the prayer now from verse 3. Uh, so you have to follow along in your Bible so you know that I'm preaching from the Bible. Verse 3 says this, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. All right, let's take note first. He comes with fasting, right? So that means he doesn't want food. He wants to focus all his attention onto God. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of having a heart that's repentant, grieving, uh, knowing that there's this brokenness between them and God, a broken relationship. But look at the language. He comes to God in confession, doesn't he? And we see this first mark of a humble heart. There's this reality that we need to face when we stand before God. We aren't perfect. We are weak. We are sinful. We don't like confessing that. We don't like confessing that to anyone. How it's so much it, it's hard to confess it to God too. We don't like to confess that we have uh, failures and wrongdoing. We do want to keep our honor, don't we? Some would rather die for then others know their shame. No one likes being vulnerable. It's terrifying, I know. I don't want anyone to know my weaknesses or my failures. But Daniel models his strength, doesn't he, in vulnerability before God. He comes in confession. And it's not confession, you know, you hear the word confession, and I don't know if you instantly think of this, I think of like a confession booth, you know, you go talk to a Catholic priest in a confession booth, let's go do confession now. No, it's, he comes in confession before God, which we could all do at any time, comes to God and lays out all his sin before him, his shame. We've stuffed up as a people. There's a reason why we're in exile. There's a reason why we've been under oppression for these 70 years. Verse 11, if you, in the same chapter, verse 11 says, All Israel has transgressed against your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. See, the reason why they've been in exile is because of this curse, because they've sinned against God. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and 29, you can note it down if you're taking notes. You can read about it later. It talks about the curses and, bless, uh, curses and blessings for obedience and disobedience. And, and this idea is Daniel's expressing that. He knows that's in the law of Moses, the law given to Moses. God has said, if you follow my commandments, you will be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. And this is one of those, being exiled out of the land in Babylon. They worshipped idols from generation to generation. God eventually let them go, gave them over to their sin, cast them out of the promised land of Israel. And Daniel was honest about this. He, he, even, uh, he even lumped himself, we didn't listen to you, we disobeyed your commandments, we acted wickedly, we rebelled. When was the last time you came to God with that sort of confession of sin? I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to ignore our sin and downplay it. I think as Christians, we, we take grace for granted and we forget that we're actually sinful before God. And it took Jesus to die on the cross for us to even approach him. When we confess, though, it reminds us, doesn't it? It humbles us. That we can't look down on others. We ourselves don't have it all together. 
It humbles us because we realize that we do disobey God. And if you're anything like me, you'll go through each day so unaware of your sin at times that you'll forget to confess it. You'll, you, you won't even uh, pay attention to those subtle instances of sin, like, like those moments of greed and pride and selfishness. selfishness. When was the last time you confessed those sort of things to God? When was the last time uh, you, you even made the time for it? Uh, yeah, I could pray more, but I, I, I chose today to scroll Instagram all night. You know, I, I could call a brother or sister in Christ to support and pray for them, but I'd rather binge watch Squid Game instead. I could give money to, to, to support others or organizations trying to make a difference, but I'd rather hoard and keep them in all my investments so I can make more money for myself. Yeah, and we, we don't realize there are these subtle instances of sin that's always at play in our hearts. Let me be clear, though. Sin is the breakdown in our relationship with God. Yes, it, sin has broken that, but it's expressed, isn't it, in our action or our inaction. Sin isn't just doing bad things. Some people think it's just doing bad things. But it's also not doing the things we ought to do. God commands us to love my neighbor as myself. But I guarantee everyone in this room spends more hours on ourselves loving ourselves than the people around them, right? We can't live up to God's standards perfectly. We have to accept that we are sinful, me included. And God isn't looking at how smart you are, how many degrees you have, how much salary, how big your salary is, how morally good you are. He's looking at your heart. And he calls us to love him and love others. And we can't do that perfectly. We'll all have sin, traces of sin in our hearts. When was the last time you came before God and confessed your sin? When was the last time you acknowledged that today you were selfish with your gifts that he gave you? You were selfish with the time you were given. That you were actively or passively choosing not to serve God and others, but to serve yourself. Let me challenge us today. Really think about this. Let's work on this. Let's work on our self-awareness so we can approach God with humility and being aware that each day there's a battle for our hearts to worship God or worship self and to be aware that every day we need to come to God in confession knowing we're not perfect. We need to have an honest look at ourselves and it means that we get to leave entitlement and privilege at the door. You know what's really amazing? Daniel himself is showing us what this humility looks like. He's a man of prayer. Uh, we heard that in uh, chapter 6 a few weeks ago where he was thrown into the den of lions. He consistently prayed throughout his life. He was so faithful to God, a godly man who had integrity and followed the laws of God. But even in this chapter, we're told he comes to God in sackcloth and ashes. That's saying something. That's saying he isn't above that. He's willing to put himself in the same boat with the rest of the people, knowing even though he tries his best to live out the uh, godliness, he himself isn't without sin. He's willing to love himself with the rest of the people. We have disobeyed you. And you read Daniel, right? And, and with our lens, we read and we're like, man, Daniel's such a godly man. He's so, he's so courageous with his faith. But as godly man as he is, he too is able to confess sin. Isn't that amazing? Why don't we? Why do we think we're too good for it? Why do we choose to ignore it and downplay our sin? The second point I want to raise is this. We need to know the God we pray to. That's how we're going to come to him in, in humility. We need to come before him uh, knowing who he is, the God we pray to. to. To understand sin is to understand what sin is not. Throughout this prayer, did you pick up what he says about God? In verse 4, I think I've got on the screen, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness 
but to us open shame. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city. See, when, when Daniel compares himself to God, all he can do is approach with sackcloth and ashes. Think about this, right? Think about how this plays out in everyday life. Um, I, I work out. I go to the gym, I work out. You, you, you might have noticed that. And um, when I compare myself, right, my muscles to my friends who don't work out, man, I'm huge, right? I'm huge around them. I've got, I've got biceps. But that's when I compare myself to my scrawny friends. Now, if I stood next to someone like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, right, or, or Jason Momol, right, someone huge, wouldn't I stand humble in his presence? I'd feel so small. His right bicep is the size of my head, right? What is your standard? And, and I get it. Some of you guys don't have many Christian friends outside of church. Uh, you, you spend time with people who, who don't believe in God, and you compare yourself to them. I, I'm actually doing pretty good before God. I'm not like that. At least I go to church sometimes. At least I pray sometimes. Who's your, who's your standard? Who are you comparing yourself to? It's so easy, isn't it? We compare ourselves to those who are, who are less educated, those who are incompetent, those who think uh, we think are less good than I am, who are uh, morally unethical. And we say, hey, I'm not doing too bad, God. At least I'm not like those people. When you have a big picture and deep knowledge of the God you worship, the one you come before each day in prayer, you will look at yourself and your heart and you can only be less humble. You know, yeah, I can compare myself to Daniel and Daniel's pretty godly in this, you know, in this book of the Bible. He seems like such a godly man. I could be possibly, you know, a few divisions below Daniel. But in the presence of God, man, I have no chance. He's in a whole other world. I can't compare myself to him. His holiness and his righteousness is perfect. If you want to take a good look at yourself, ask yourself whether you're, you are good and whether you're, you don't need to confess your sin. Maybe you need to start looking at God then and how righteous and perfect he is. How do you stack up to God, the great and awesome God who is faithful to his promises and steadfast love, the one who is righteousness personified and defined? So when you know God, you'll come before him in humility and confession because truth is you and I are unworthy. We should feel a bit dirty around God, unholy, sinful, before a perfect holy God. Our sin has separated us from him, so we can't even be in his presence. Now, thanks to Jesus, we don't need to feel that way anymore. He has cleansed us and he's made us worthy, yes. But if you have never actually felt that way around God, if you never felt unclean or unholy, maybe you never truly confessed. Maybe you've never really processed your sin before. I get it's hard sometimes for you to see your sin. Maybe you need people around you to help you. But look at God and who he is. Look at how holy and righteous he is compared to yourself. Dig deep into the scriptures. See, everything that Daniel draws from is his knowledge of what he knows about God in the scriptures. He prays to God from the word of God. He knows God personally and deeply. And perhaps when you come before him and dig into the scriptures, you'll be humbled when you get to know him too. But there is a flip side to this, isn't there? When we confess our sin, we also know God doesn't leave us in our mess. Daniel trusts in a big God who is loving, who is faithful, who is promises. Every time he talks about God, he talks about God's righteousness and faithfulness to his covenant. 
which promises to restore and care for his people. Because of God's covenant, uh, verse 4 again, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Covenant is that word, isn't it? To remember that God is going to be restored his people one day. And, and that word, covenant, if you don't know, is a simple basic understanding of like it's a really strong promise between two people. A promise that you stake your life on. Uh, this afternoon, we, we, some of us are going to a wedding of Tim and Sam, which is awesome, but they're going to make a marriage covenant through their vows. That's sort of the covenant we're thinking of. God has made a covenant with his people that will be blessed by him in a relationship with him. Daniel knows this about his character, about who God is. God won't forsake his people. God won't break his covenant. So verse 17 in, your, in this chapter says this, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. That sanctuary is Jerusalem. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He's, making, he's, he's asking God to act, to restore the people, to bring them home. Why? Always repeated there. Not because the people are now sinless and good by any means, but because God himself promised it. He's calling God to live up, up to his side of the covenant. To, for God's name and his reputation, because God's name and his reputation is on the line. He says, don't delay. Why? For the, for the sake of your name. For your own sake, O Lord. He won't leave us in our sin. He's promised to, to, to take us out of our brokenness and our dirtiness. He will restore his people. He will cleanse us, make us new, forgive us of our sin, because that's what he promised to do. Daniel's calling him on that. God has promised to listen to our prayers. He promises to, to, to restore people in, who repent, people who confess our sins. God will fulfill his end of the covenant. Not for our sake, but for the sake of his holy name. Are you tracking with me here, right? The God is the one who is faithful, not us. We will consistently be unfaithful, but when we come to him in repentance, we can trust that God will fulfill his word to us. That's his character. You know, he, he can't uh, not fulfill his word. He can't sin against us. That's not his character. So we can trust him that he will fulfill his covenant promises, and that's what Daniel's doing here, calling him, calling him out on that. God, do this for the sake of your name. See, the way you approach God and you pray to him will be one of confession and petition when you know the God you pray to. It won't look like entitlement. It won't look like privilege or selfishness. It's not about us. When we pray, we're not asking God to make us the center of the world. We're asking God to be the one who is at the center and the one to be glorified. And that should humble and ground us. This is God's world, not my world. How can... Uh, any of us look down on, on anyone around us? How can any of us act entitled when we're all on the same playing field before the great and awesome God? Let me encourage you, come before God in confession and repentance and in petition, asking God to do what he promised to do. Petition God to help us, ask God to help you and I to be less sinful and more holy, to be more self-aware, selfless and God-centered. I know for most of us, we want God to do something with our circumstances, right? That's when you pray to him. 
I know I get that. That's that's a good thing to do. God help us with our jobs, help us with our anxiety, help us with the rut we're in, and God will hear our prayers. But petition Him in a way uh, where we want Him to do it for the sake of His holiness. Save us, rescue us from our circumstances, because we want to glorify Your name. We want Your name to be at the center. We can be assured that He will answer us when it means restoring us closer to Him. If my circumstances get better, it's because I'm hoping that he'll bring me closer to God. And that we'll be able to honor his name even more. Now, I could stop there, right? And, and we could have a good formula for prayer. How do you see yourself and how you come before God in prayer? But what gives you reassurance? How do we know God is listening? Do we believe that God is listening? Will God answer our prayers? See, the third point I said earlier is trusting God and his plans for us. How do we do that, though? Daniel prayed and he confessed and he petitioned desperately to God. God gave him an answer through the messenger, this, this angel, Gabriel. Right? We didn't read the second half. We're going to read just touch upon bits of it today because it gets really uh, out, goes, it goes a bit wacky. But I want to make some brief references to it now. Well, chapter 8, Gabriel gave, gives us this interpretation. Uh, last week, Gabriel gave an interpretation to a vision. In chapter 9, Gabriel shows up again and he uses all this sim, uh, symbolic, apocalyptic language without giving us interpretation. So we've got to figure this out. Verse 24, so if you have your Bibles, do I have it on the screen, verse 24? Yes. Let's read it together. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. So this is in response to his prayer. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven Seven, so sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times, uh, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death, and he will have nothing. The people, the ruler who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end, and desolations have been decreased. Now, yours might say seven weeks instead of seven sevens, right? But it's the idea of sevens. Now, that sounds really confusing, doesn't it? Who knows what's going on? You can go down rabbit holes to figure out what these symbolic numbers, but we can get an idea, so don't let's not give up yet. There are ideas on what these symbolic numbers represent, right, and how in history they've been fulfilled. And there could be multiple horizons where it's been fulfilled throughout history. Uh, there's lots of theories about this. You can go down rabbit holes, but be careful where you end up, okay? You might end up with some sort of flat earth theory eventually. But be careful where you end up online, especially on Google. But let me give you my thoughts. Last week, we heard about a beast, didn't we, with ten horns. Uh, in chapter 7. And remember, we saw, we saw how 10 is really repetitive in the Bible. It's symbolic for a complete number. The 10 horns, when the, when the 10 horns are this sort of the idea of completion. 7 also, that number 7, also uh, pops up a lot in the Bible, uh, which also has the same idea of, of completion, right? So how many days in creation? 7, right? Uh, uh, what's another example? That's it. Um, in, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18.22, right? Jesus uh, he says, how many times should we forgive? 70 times 7, right? And these numbers are there for us to show us as, many, uh, as long as it's going to take, essentially. It's this idea of complete, whatever, as long as it'll take. As many times as it'll take, 70 times 7. Yeah, think about the number that, how long were they going to be in Babylon for? For 70 years, 7 times 10. There's two numbers that are numbers that represent completeness, however long it's going to take. And it, and it just seemed to be around 70 years that they were in Babylon. 
And so this is quite interesting, isn't it? Gabriel rocks up. Daniel's praying. God, you said 70 years will be back in Jerusalem. So, you know, fulfill that. He says, sure. You know, Gabriel rocks up, sure. But you know what? It's going to take 77 before God's people will be completely restored. Verse 24 again. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. Sin. To finish sin. To put an end to sin. To atone for wickedness. To bring in everlasting, forever righteousness. 77, right? So yes, you, you can go back to Jerusalem, and the temple will be rebuilt. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find out in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible, the temple was rebuilt. That's great. But it's going to take 70 times 7, 77s before the complete restoration will take place. Right? So I'm giving you guys an idea of how we should read this, right? These, these symbolic numbers. Don't try to do math. It's like that meme with all the things going, oh, how do I calculate this? Don't think about that. The answer is the only, only God knows how long it will really take. For us, he gives us this idea, well, 77 to me, as long as it's going to take. What else does Gabriel say? He says, you'll know the time is getting near when there's one that's going to come as the anointed one who shows up on the scene. The anointed one. We know what that means, don't we? If you've been in church long enough, it means Christ. It means Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. That's the anointed one. Who was this? As people who live after Daniel in 2021, we know this is Christ. It was Jesus. Jesus did come, and he was put to death for us. He, he was put to death so that sin could be no more. His death and his resurrection atoned for wickedness once and for all. As Christians who have the whole Bible, we can see how Jesus fulfills this, can't we? Gabriel tells Daniel about this prophecy, to patiently look to the future. But for us, we look to the past. We see how God's faithful to his covenant that was fulfilled in Jesus. We don't need no angel telling us this. We've got the Word of God. The Word of God in its entirety. We've got Jesus who was God's final word to us. And through him we know righteousness, everlasting righteousness has come. You go to the New Testament and in 1 Peter 3.18 it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. The righteous for the unrighteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See what Daniel was saying? Uh, the Gabriel was saying to Daniel, there'll be time where there'll be everlasting righteousness. Daniel shows us, right, as we come to God, we come to him in humility and prayer. We come to him knowing that sin has its consequences. God's people had to deal with living in Babylon under the rule of an oppressive government. But this chapter also shows us God's grace will triumph. And yes, while we live in this period of history where there are still wars and still famine and still pandemics, sin still exists. Verse 24 tells us there will come an end to all of this one day. One day we will be able to enter into God's kingdom of everlasting righteousness. And Jesus began that, that process, didn't he? The righteousness comes from having faith in him. That he died on our behalf. That he alone is the one who can rescue us. He is the anointed one. You see, Daniel's asking God to restore his people and Gabriel says there'll come a day when full restoration will happen. Daniel knows that God is good and faithful. He has to trust that. Will we? Will we be able to pray in, in humility, faithfully trust God and his plans for us? Or will we act entitled and demand God to do what we want him to do for us? 
perhaps while we grow in humility, we should also allow God to, God to, to cultivate patience in our hearts. We don't know what the future will look like. We don't know when Jesus will return. Maybe while we wait patiently, we, we live out our faithfulness. Because that's what really God has called us all to do. Live out our faithfulness while we wait. We still have to live in our own version of Babylon, a world where sin is out there and sin is in our hearts. It's so much easier to act entitled. Yes, I get that. We want results today. We live in a world of instant gratification and all that. But to wait patiently, yeah, that's going to be hard. Sometimes you'll be going through long seasons of struggle where you want God to act, where you'll demand God to act. But don't give up. Persevere. Don't fall into the trap of thinking God isn't good anymore because you didn't get what you wanted in that moment. Wait on God patiently. That might look like sitting with your anxiety if you have to. But you can do that. Not because Gabriel tells us what the future holds, but because the Bible tells us what has already happened in the past. We know God has worked, that God is faithful to his covenant. We can trust him as we wait patiently for him to work in the future. Jen Wilkin, right? She's an author in the U.S. Some of you guys have read her books. Um, I'm a big fanboy of her. She's got a podcast you guys should all listen to. But she wrote this on Instagram the other day. I've got a screenshot of it, I think. She wrote this on Instagram. Um, the antidote to anxiety about the future is not to discern the future, but to remember the past. Instead of straining your gaze forward, love over your shoulder and rehearse. Is it love? Liz? Look. Look over your shoulder and rehearse God's faithfulness to you and to all generations. Straining your gaze forward, look over your shoulder and rehearse God's faithfulness to you and to all generations. Isn't that amazing? I find that so helpful. We want control of our future. We get anxious about our future. We don't know what's to come. Sometimes we act entitled, demanding things of those around us. We want control, thinking we deserve it. We deserve to be liberated from the hardships we're facing. We don't like being uncomfortable. No one does. We come to God and we make demands, asking Him to lift us out of that pit that we're in. Yes, we want God to meet our plans, to give us good circumstances, but perhaps we need to shift our mindset and consider, maybe trust that God's plans are greater than ours, that He does have our best in mind, even if we can't see it or feel it in the moment. Maybe we need to trust in His plans because we know how good and great He is, and that He is always faithful to His covenant. As we approach God, maybe we need to look in first. Look in, see our sin, see ourselves as God sees us, see that we are, we are at times unrighteous, we have sin that we need to confess. As we do that, let's look, let's look back and let's remember the past. Look to how Jesus entered our world and died for our sin. We don't need to stay miserable or feel unworthy or dirty to approach God. God invites us to come to him. We can see that as Jesus has come into our world. We can come to him humbly knowing that his death and his resurrection has secured us a relationship with God. As we look back at, the, at Jesus at the cross, let's look up and forward with hope, trusting God who has all things in control. Let's read his word and discover who he is and pray accordingly, trusting he will restore and bring his children, people like you and I, into his presence, his everlasting righteousness for us. Let's look in, let's look back, let's look up and forward. Friends, will you consider your heart before God? How do you approach him? How has Jesus given you confidence and hope in a world where you're struggling to see results, where you're struggling to see purpose, where you're struggling to see a light at the end of the tunnel and feel like you're in darkness? 
it's so easy to respond with uh, to, to, to lash out with entitlement and privilege demanding people around us to serve us in those moments but maybe you need to come before God in trust and hope knowing that God is faithful to his promises just as he's shown us at the cross of Jesus for those here who aren't Christians can I encourage you to consider this that there is a hope beyond this world that this this hell that we live in isn't all that there is. That there will be an end to humankind's sin. There will be a day where there will be an end to wickedness that will be done away with. There will be no more war, no more famine, no more pain, no more suffering, and every tear will be wiped away. We don't know when, but we can trust God that he has taken care of it because we know our restoration has come in and through Jesus. You can put your faith in him. You can, alongside us, trust that God will work in your life and the lives of those around you. Take the invitation. Surrender your circumstances, your present, and your future into his hands in humility and trust. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can approach you, our good and great God, the God of the universe. We have the privilege to do that because we've now, we're now called your children. We can approach you and call us our Father in heaven. And we can call Jesus our brother. And we can know that Jesus has saved us from our sins so that we can be clean as we enter into your presence. We pray, Lord, that that truth will resonate deeply in us, will echo into our week as we come before you each day in confession and in petition, knowing that you can, uh, that you are powerful enough to work. You're powerful enough to change our circumstances, but you're powerful enough to fulfill what you promised to do, to make us holy, to make us more like you. You see your kingdom come in this